Welcome to The Blind Side. News and information from a blindness perspective. Here's Jonathan Mosen. Nice to have you with us for this edition of the podcast. It's marvellous when you can take a mobile studio along with you and just keep pumping out the uh, podcasts and the Mushroom FM shows and the other things that we need to do. This one is coming to you from a hotel room in Las Vegas where we have the Beatles Love Show to look forward to this evening as I record this. So we're very much looking forward to that. Quite an extraordinary place, Las Vegas. There's so much going on. Flew over here on the Dreamliner. And if you're interested in all that stuff, then the Mosin Explosion this weekend has a kind of a travel log where we're going through and sharing some of our experiences. So do join us for that on Mushroom FM. The show airs at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on a Sunday afternoon, replays at 5 a.m. Eastern Time on a Tuesday morning for those people who missed the original play. We have taken Liz the Wonder Dog, Bonnie's seeing eye dog, with us as we travel around the United States. We're spending time visiting friends and family. I have a little bit of work to do as well. Very pleasurable work it is too, speaking to state employees in New Jersey next week, and maybe we can get that on the blind side. I'm not sure about that, but we'll have to see if we can get that address uh, on there just for a bit of variety. But we're going to be spending time with uh, Bonnie's mum's place in Tennessee. So I've got lots of mobile data loaded into my phone thanks to a reasonably good roaming plan that my carrier in New Zealand has where you can pay $5 a day and use the phone as if you were at home. And that's really suiting me because I have unlimited calls and texts and that unlimited calls and texts thing applies to both New Zealand and the United States when I'm here in the States. So I can call numbers here in the States and call back home and all that good stuff. And I got 15 gigs a month on my plan. We're doing pretty well with data in New Zealand now. It never used to be the case. I used to sort of drool with envy at the mobile plans that were available in some other countries, but we're doing much, much better than we used to. I also brought my iPad Pro 9.7 inch along and that has the built-in Apple SIM. And I did have quite a lot of difficulty trying to sign up. Originally, I chose T-Mobile because it looked like they were quite generous. And there were some accessibility issues with T-Mobile's sign-up process built into the settings app of the iPhone. Had a good chat to Apple's accessibility team about that and talked to T-Mobile. So hopefully it can be addressed so that those people who want to use that in the future can do so with a lot less hassle. But the other carriers with the embedded Apple SIM worked just fine and the sign-up was accessible. In the end, I actually went with Sprint because there is Sprint coverage at Bonnie's mum's house and Bonnie's mum doesn't have the internet, so that's my main concern. And um, I'm assured they have good LTE coverage out there and they do have some quite generous prepaid options for higher-end data requirements. So that's really good. So getting Lizzie out of the country is no big deal at all. America welcomed her back with open paws or something. Woof, woof. Getting Lizzie back into New Zealand is a major mission. We have to work very closely with New Zealand's Ministry for Primary Industries because there are all sorts of mean and nasty diseases that other countries have that New Zealand does not. And because New Zealand's economy is so dependent on agriculture, that's a really big thing to consider. So you have to go through all sorts of tests and applications and stuff like this. Now, because we're traveling for over three weeks with Lizzie, Bonnie has packed a lot of Lizzie's food because we're on the move a lot. So she's put the food in bags and packed it. This has meant that we got pinged by the airline and we're way over, well, not way over, seven pounds, they say, seven pounds over the limit of uh, 50 pounds 
for one bag. We were trying to be cute, and we just brought one bag with us with this track dot that I think I mentioned on the previous podcast that lets you be notified automatically when your bag has arrived, hopefully at the same airport as you, and that's working great. We did get the notifications that the bag is here, and it gives you some confidence when you're uh, getting some assistance, getting your bag off the carousel, and you can say, yes, it's definitely here. I know it to be here because I've been notified. So that's really cool. Anyway, we got pinged for the ways. And so as I record this, Bonnie's actually offered a target, reacquainting herself with the American institutions and getting another bag. But we've been talking about this, and this may be a bit of a New Zealand mentality, so you might have some views on this. New Zealand, I guess, is is a kind of a, uh, a country that has quite a strong, I don't know if socialist is the right way to describe us, but we do have, obviously, a, a fully funded national health care system. Blind people do receive a payment, even if they're working, to compensate for their costs of blindness, because we do believe that there are some costs that you can specifically attribute to blindness and that they should be compensated for otherwise the income you earn is depleted for the privilege of being blind so that's the way that we think and Bonnie and I were talking about this and we thought it's interesting that you cannot get some sort of exemption to the weight requirements when you are traveling with a service animal and you have legitimate needs that need to be taken into account as it affects that animal for example obviously no one would expect a guide dog to go in the hold you travel with your guide dog. And even if that means that the airline uses an extra seat, then so be it. That's just considered an accommodation. So we have quite a few of these bags of food for Lizzie. And that does restrict the amount of waste that we have left for everyday things that humans need, like clothes and those sorts of things when you're traveling on a long trip. And so I do wonder whether there might be a case that could be made that says when you're traveling with a service dog, Uh, Maybe don't count the allowance if you've got a lot of dog-related things like food and other things that they may find essential because that would seem to me quite a legitimate accommodation. Would be interested in knowing what you think about that. You can drop me an email and you can just type it or if you prefer, you can send a voice attachment, say using your smartphone's voice memos app or something similar. And the email address is theblindside, all joined together, theblindside at mosin.org. The blind side at M-O-S-E-N dot org would be interesting to hear your views on that. In the meantime, we get a second bag so that we don't get pinged again with those very high excess bag charges. Our guest for the blind side very shortly is Dr. Judy Dixon, who has made an enormous contribution in so many areas to the blind community. Many people will know her, of course, through her work with the NLS, the National Library Services here in the United States. And also, of course, she's an author. She's done a lot of work with technology. It will be a real pleasure to speak with Judy, and we will do that shortly. Hey. Hey, yourself. What do you want? I just want to say hello real quickly. Hello. And something else. What? I want you to listen to my radio show. Why should I do that? Because it's the best radio show of its kind. What kind of music do you play? Mm, 60s and 70s. Oh, groovy, groovy. Mm-hmm. Is it fogey safe? <laughs> fogey, yes, I think it is fogey safe. Since I'm a fogey, I would declare that. And what do you do? I uh, play 60s and 70s music and talk about stuff. And why do you do that? Because I can. Uh-huh. And it's just something I'm good at. And now. what is the show on? 
Oh, details. Details. The show is called Snow White FM because that's the radio station I program from. And it's on Saturday evening, Mm -hmm. 8 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on Mushroom FM. And you want me to be there, be there, be there? Be there or be square and don't talk to me about it if you don't because if you can't, I don't want to hear about it. I'll be there. Be there, Bozo. (laughs) Snow White FM, Saturday nights, 8 p.m. Eastern, right here on Mushroom FM. It's time to hear from this week's featured guest on The Blind Side. There are so many ways we could introduce our guest today. Capable, effective Braille user and advocate, early technology adopter and pusher of its boundaries, author, skier, international traveller, the list really does go on. So let me just introduce her as someone who's made an enormous contribution, a huge difference. Her name has been associated for many years with the Library of Congress's NLS program, and she's Dr. Judy Dixon. It's great to have you with us, Judy. Thank you for giving us some time. Thanks very much, Jonathan. I'm glad to be here. You were born blind, and it appears that you were very fortunate in terms of the way that your family responded to that challenge. I had those kinds of parents that loved a project, they, they were not well-educated people by any means. Um, actually, I think my mother barely graduated from high school. My father never graduated from high school. And neither of them had any advanced education. But they were people who, they were smart, and they loved a challenge. And so when I was born, I was actually born in Cocoa, Florida, and when I was 10 days old, my mother took me to Boston because my mother was from the Boston area and she had nine siblings who I'm sure all were saying, well, come to Boston. There's yeah. so much better medical things like the here. the Please Come to Boston song, right? Yes, yeah. that's right. <laughs> and so she did. And uh, she uh, took me to ophthalmologist there. But she also visited Perkins. My mother was one to get on with it. And uh, they asked her how old her child was, and she said 11 days old. (laughs) They said, "Uh, come back in a while. (laughs) That's remarkable, though, because so often it really knocks parents for six. And you can understand that in the sense that people want the perfect baby, whatever that is. And so you would expect that maybe there might be a little bit of a a grieving process, as they call it there. But it sounds like your family just got on with the reality of it. (laughs) They, They did. And I think they just, I don't know. I don't know. I wasn't there, fortunately, or not. <laughs> so I, I don't know if they uh, took any time to, to think about it. Fortunately, I wasn't, I wasn't the oldest child. So I suspect uh, the more kids you already have, maybe it gets a little easier after a while. You narrowly escaped when it was time for school. You, you narrowly escaped long-term anyway, the sight-saving class. And this was a thing back then. Even in New Zealand, you know, these American trends often percolate. And I've spoken to people in New Zealand who were put into the sight-saving class. I don't understand fully the theory about this other than it seems that people thought if you had a bit of sight and you didn't use it, you'd lose it. And so they put kids in these sight-saving classes, and it is tragic how many people I talk to who went through those, who lament and deeply regret that they were deprived of good, intensive Braille instruction. I think the idea also was that if you had a bit of sight, you needed to learn how to use it. And because um, I, I do remember uh, starting out in large print, 
and but I was only in sight saving for three weeks, and uh, as I as I often say, they, they decided my sight wasn't worth saving, <laughs> and they were right because it wasn't, and I didn't. I don't remember. Uh, I don't remember objecting or being sad or in being in any way concerned about the fact that I was going off to the Braille class. I thought it was all great fun. And learning Braille was such a kick that uh, it, it, it didn't bother me in the slightest. Over the years, we hear about people who grew up who were not taught Braille. Do you think that's still an issue that you know, these days, with so many resources being spread out because of mainstreaming and, and really busy itinerant teachers heading all over the place to try and cover all their students, that there tends to be a view that you only give Braille to those who really need it. I think that's still true. And I think that in if people live in affluent areas where there are a significant number of TBIs and enough number of enough TBIs to do the job, then they're in pretty good shape. But there are certainly in the United States, there are kids who live in areas where there are not enough TVIs and kids are not taught Braille or not taught enough Braille because there aren't enough teachers to do it. How fluently do you read Braille? I know that's a difficult question to answer, but you're obviously a very fluent Braille reader and you obtain much of your information that's online or, or in any format really via the medium. So you must have developed exceptionally good Braille skills. I, I do, but I'm I'm not one of those people who says, oh, I read Braille at you know, three or four yeah. or 500 <laughs> words a minute. I'm, I'm not really about speed. I, I don't, I mean, I might speed up my audio 1.25 or maybe 1.5, but that's about it. I don't read it at three and four times. And I don't think I read Braille at three and 400 words a minute. I probably read about the speed of an average college student, 200, 250 words a minute, something like that. And But I read, I mean, I can get the job done. I can read whole volumes of Braille in, in you know, an hour or so. <laughs> and and uh, so, yes, I mean, for me, Braille is a completely comfortable, fluent medium, whether it's hard copy or whether it's uh, refreshable. Is there a difference in terms of how fluent you can be with hard copy as compared with refreshable Braille? I think so. I think I read hard copy Braille more fluently. I, if I really want to read a document and, and think about it hard and proofread it and so forth, I'll emboss it just because I like seeing paper under my hands. That's really interesting. I can't remember the last time I read a piece of hard copy Braille, but yeah. <laughs> you, you, and you're a really avid slate and stylist user even now, right? And you collect them, in fact. I do collect them, and I still have I have uh, 278 unique slates from about 40 countries. And there aren't very many new ones, although there are still a few being made in India and so forth, but nothing very creative. Nothing creative has been done in the area of handwriting devices for blind people in, in quite some time, which is really actually sad. I read an article just recently about the fact that the sale of pens and pencils is continuing to climb. Handwriting devices for sighted people are not going away. And I don't totally understand why they are so irrelevant for blind people. How did you come to start collecting all of those slate what's is the plural of stylus styli that yes it is <laughs> okay. how did you come to collect all of those 
I am not sure how it started. Uh, I saw a catalog, I think, in the late 70s, early 80s. I already probably had 10 or 20 different slates. And I saw a catalog, an international catalog of different devices. And I acquired a few of those. And one thing led to another. And then I started working hard at it. Um, I was good friends with Pedro Zarita in the years that he was working for the World Blind Union. Mm. So he traveled to a lot of countries and was able to uh, help the collection along significantly. And when it was time for school, you ended up at the Florida School for the Blind in St. Augustine, Florida. What was that experience like? Horrible. (laughs) I mean, you know, I was very rebellious. Um, I was five years old in the fall of 1958. And to spare everybody the math, I (laughs) was born in 1952. I'm working on this myself. And in the fall of 58, I started the School for the Blind. And I, I had, I'd been, I'd grown up in the country. And I'd been a pretty independent kid. I mean, the parents who thought it was a great project um, were also parents who um, were not overprotective. But the other side of that is, you know, sure, I wanted to run around outside or, you know, go play in traffic. I was perfectly free to do that. Um, So (laughs) while they weren't uh, overprotective, they weren't even what you would call protective. So I had been used to having lots of freedom. I could come and go as I wished and, and you know, climb trees and whatever. And I get to the school for the blind where people are watching every move and it just drove me crazy. So, I mean, I, I climbed out the window at night and went into St. Augustine, was picked up by the police. And they were very nice to me the first time or two it happened. <laughs> But it it was it just was not an environment that I did very well in, and I was constantly in trouble. And I mean, and, you know what what recourse did they have? I mean, no dessert, those kinds of things. And I remember so well the I was there for all of first grade and until Christmas time of second grade. And I remember near Christmas time of second grade, my parents came to visit once. They came up every other weekend, and we went and stayed at a motel with a pool, and that was always great fun. And they came one time, and I told them I couldn't go out with them because I had been good all week, and I was going to be able to have ice cream. And my father was devastated. He says, you know, we can, I can get you a gallon of ice cream. But that wasn't the point. It wasn't the point at all, and he knew it. He knew it wasn't the point. And it actually frightened him, as as it should have, because it meant that I was very close to caving in and and just becoming a, I can't think of the word for it, automaton or something like that. And But about that same time, my parents had continued to communicate with my mother's siblings in the Boston area, and one of my aunts told my mother that there was going to be a classroom starting up for blind kids in her town. And I could uh, possibly go to school there. And kids were going to public school and just going home and being like normal kids. And they had this resource room teacher who was going to teach us 
things. And so my mother went, we went to Boston at Christmas, right after Christmas that year. And my mother looked into it and sure enough, they said, yes, I could go there. So the idea was that I'd go and see an ophthalmologist. I had corneal issues. So they were always telling me I was going to have corneal transplants and, you know, one day I could see. They always talked about getting my sight back. And I remember even as a little kid, that confused me because I yes. never had it in the first place. You know? <laughs> but, but that's what they called it. And uh, so I, I, oh, you'll, you know, we'll go to school here until June of that year, second grade. And I ended up staying there and going to school through the end of seventh grade because it was just such a great environment. I mean, you know, I was in public school and I lived with cousins and did normal things and it was terrific. I absolutely loved it. So how do you feel then about the age-old question of schools for the blind versus mainstreaming? Because I suppose the advantage of schools for the blind is that it does allow a concentration of resources, which can be beneficial academically, at least potentially in theory. I think there's a lot of advantages of school for the blind. I think that you can have specialized equipment. You can have, I mean, there's there's a lot I didn't have. I didn't have as much specialized equipment. Uh, I didn't have the, the tactile maps I had were ones that my father made for me. And the, I mean, in those days, the, probably the gap wasn't even as wide as it is now because one wasn't so worried about technology and what technology we didn't have. But the other thing, I did, I did know some other blind people uh, when I was in school in Massachusetts because there were at various times five, six, seven other, other blind kids. But when I went to junior high, there were no other blind kids. And then starting eighth grade, I went to Florida. And I don't think I saw another, another living blind person until I was out of college. And that's, that's not good. That is, that's something that, that I really missed in my life. And I know that when I, as an adult, had an opportunity to meet and, and socialize with other blind people, it was something I really enjoyed. And that's something else I think you get from a school for the blind is being around other people who are like you. Mm. And over the years people will have looked up to you. There'll be young people who will have sought you out and talked about your career and your use of technology and just living life as an independent blind woman. And I think young blind people need that. I, I agree. I think, I think blind people do need to know other blind people who can do the things they themselves hope one day they can do. And I certainly have talked to probably hundreds by this time of blind people over the years who very often, you know, they're out of school, they still live at home, and they're trying to figure out how to, how to get on with it. And I, I went away to college, uh, went back to Florida to go to college. Well, actually, I was in Florida. I went to back to eighth grade, went back to public school in Florida. And at that point, I had no resources, zero the school in Florida said, well, the kid can go to school here, but we will provide no support. So um, we had a local transcribing group that transcribed books for me. <laughs> it's like I kept seven ladies busy yeah. transcribing Braille, um, which was absolutely fabulous for me. But uh, And they, till I was about a senior in high school, and they said, you know, we're not going to do this in college. You're going to have to start using tape. Oh, anything but that. <laughs> <laughs> Did you naturally just take to Braille? It's something that came naturally to you? 
I, I did. I don't even, I, I don't even remember having to learn it or having any difficulty with it. I know I must have read books that were um, more advanced than my own vocabulary because I remember reading about people in my books were going to places like Chicago and Maryland and and I didn't know these words but I read them in my books so <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah and they were having catastrophes yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes when you were growing up and and uh, getting ready to think about college did you have any specific career ambitions in mind at that point I I didn't and I I was so ill prepared and so I mean no one around me knew anything about what blind people could do and I didn't know what blind people could do. I loved math. I loved science. Um, and yet the only, uh, the uh, Florida, it was Division of Blind Services in those days. Uh, I think a counselor came once and she said, well, you have to major in music or education because that's what blind people do. And I knew I wasn't musical. So, <laughs> and I didn't think I was going to be very good at teaching anybody anything. So I didn't, I said, no, I don't think that will work. And uh, the only thing I could figure out to do was psychology. I can talk, I can listen. Um, so I figured that would be kind of a good thing. And I fortunately gravitated to every class that had math, statistics, and things everybody hated, I loved. Uh, but I, So I went to undergraduate and got an undergraduate degree in psychology well, gosh, I don't want to get a job. What am I going to do with a bachelor's degree in psychology? So I decided to go to uh, graduate school, and I applied for assistance from Florida, and they actually gave it to me, which was unusual in the day because they didn't provide funding much for people who went outside the state to school, but they did. And I went to graduate school. I got a Ph.D. in clinical psychology in 1979 in New York, in Adelphi, Garden City, New York. So I lived for four or five years in New York. And uh, you, you applied for a lot of uh, schools, right, before you were accepted. I did. I applied for dozens and um, got a lot of letters. I mean, you know, I guess in those days it was legal to say, yeah, you're a great student and we would have accepted you, but you're, you're blind, so we're not. <laughs> and uh, there wasn't much recourse. Uh, but so I was accepted in a, in a clinical program, which would not have been my first choice. My first choice would have been experimental psychology um, because I liked the science of it more than the, the uh, clinical aspect of it. But I didn't do it for long. I, I uh, worked for two years in a community college um, teaching and, and working with students and so forth. And I uh, really disliked that a lot. I wasn't very good at it. And, you know, who, most people don't like the things that they're not that good at. And then I heard about the job at the National Library Service. And I loved it because I, I loved books and I loved libraries and I loved Braille. And, and it was not a Braille job particularly. I was hired to be the head of the consumer relations section. But it was to find out about what users wanted. And, and over the years, my psychology degree has actually turned out to be incredibly helpful. I did wonder about that. <laughs> in, oh, in, in what respect? In, in a lot of respects. Uh, doing surveys, 
looking at any kind of studies that we're going to do. Uh, and then also just, um, you know, we do get our, our occasional upset person. And usually by the time they get to us, they're very upset because they've uh, been distressed with people all along the way. So it's it's been helpful. It's actually been very helpful. So you don't think that you might have pursued something different if the career advisor in Florida had given you slightly more uplifting advice? I probably would have. I mean, I you know, math or science would have definitely been the more appropriate career for me. But who knows what it would have been? I mean, at this at this age of my life, if I was going to school today, you know, clearly that would be. But in those days, it's hard to say because it it was it. I know there are there are some examples of people who did do the math and science thing in those days, but it was not the done thing. And it and uh, I don't know. It's <laughs> we can't second guess life at um, in our sixties. STEM subjects are still a pretty contentious subject within the blind community in the sense that there is concern that not enough blind people are taking those subjects up. And, of course, it's been a bit controversial with respect to the Unified English Braille Code as well, with many people protesting that UEB has made maths and sciences way too convoluted and, in fact, you know, the U.S. has opted out of UEB for Mathematics. Do you think that the UEB guys got it wrong in terms of um, the way they implemented those codes? I think that math has many different places in the lives of the people who use it. And I think for many people, math is everything from an evil necessity to you know, a vocation. And I think a lot of people need to learn math and need to use math who are not mathematicians and who are not experts in math. And I think UEB math has some real value for people for whom it is an extension of the code that they already use. It is, it is more explicit. Uh, and for a lot of people, that's very helpful because if they're not math experts, the explicitness of UEB math can be very beneficial to them. Now, is Nimeth code a good code? I absolutely believe that it is a good code. I learned it. I, I took lots of math courses when I was in school, and it's a very efficient, a very compact, and a very elegant code. But it's for the serious math student or the serious math professional. And so I, I, I hope that time will find a place in the world for both codes. Maybe that sounds a bit um, unrealistic. Maybe it sounds a, a little Pollyanna. I don't know. But I, I hope that's true because I personally believe that there is a place for both codes. I don't know if that will happen. Probably not. Right. So people working day in, day out with mathematics, they're, they're, they're steeped in the thing, they're immersed in it, but it does require a lot more decoding for those who are not that way, but just need that, to be able to read an equation. That's exactly right. It took quite an effort to get even this level of UEB adopted in, in North America, didn't it? it? It's been a very long process in the gestation. I can remember going back to 
conferences held in New Zealand in the early 90s, and I'm sure you go back way further than that in terms of an idea of unifying the codes. It did, and I think I think that one of the mistakes that was made, there was a lot of PR problems along the way, and I think when everybody started talking about a new Braille code, that was very scary. I mean, you know, what, is, is B going to be different? We're going to make it with different dots? I mean, how, how different is it? I can't tell you the number of people who have looked at UEB in the U.S. and said, well, that's not so different. I can read that. Because it's completely possible to pick up a book in UEB and just simply read it and not have to figure it out or parse it. I mean, I think the parentheses is probably the, the characters that are the most different that you might actually have to look at something for. But in a lot of cases, it's just what's not there, the contractions that are no longer used. And that's easy to read. We all know what A-L-L-Y looks like. Um, does it take up more space? Um, you know, it's, it's, I, I just don't think speed is everything. I don't, I think comprehension is a lot more important. I think accuracy is a lot more important. I think accurate reverse translation is very important for what kids are doing in schools today. And when adult Braille readers are all upset about UEB and the code that they feel is um, so different or, so, or they think it might be so different because I think in actual reality it is not that different but people who, who fear it um, I feel that it's so much more about what's right for kids than it is about what's right for, for adults One of the objections I hear and I'd like to get your response to this is that Look, people don't mess around with print in the same way that people seem to be messing around with Braille. And why are people doing this? You, you must hear this one a lot as well. I do. I do. And they actually, they do mess around with print. I mean, I think that, that sighted people don't have a special symbols page. Um, I am sure it must happen frequently that uh, people read the newspaper and see a symbol that they didn't know or don't know. Or, I mean, I, you know, I guess they pick it up somewhere. They don't have all as much helpful things around them as we do. Maybe they can look on Wikipedia or something. But um, I, I think the the fooling around with print is done in a very gradual, very ongoing trickle effect, so nobody really notices it. When I saw some very early UEB, there was a lot of emphasis on typefaces or at least different types of um of print representation like bolding and italicizing and that kind of thing. I don't see as much of that actually in real world UEB now that we're all using it. And that's interesting because one of the things that as a totally blind person, I've had to really understand and appreciate, and I'm sure many of us do who are, who are writing for a mass audience, is the way that text has to look f visually. And we really haven't had a lot of, of a way in Braille to communicate that information before. We are still seeing a lot of the bold and italics and so forth in our UEB. And I think it's an evolutionary thing. I think that when those, are, those things are agency decisions and agencies may figure out when it's necessary to include 
bold and what kind of font is being used and things like that and when not to but that's people are complaining about it here because oh, okay. the the agencies are still using all of it because oh here here's the code and that's what it says to do so that's what they're doing but i think it will i think it will drop away as time goes on but there are times when if if a blind person is going to create documents for sighted people they need to look like the documents that other sighted people make mm. so they need to have bold and they need to have different point sizes and they need to use different fonts because that's the norm today and but yet on the other hand bold does not do for the braille reader what it does for the sighted user a sighted person can look at an entire page of print and there's text on it that is bolded and that text in the eye is immediately drawn to those words these are the key words on that page and if you said to a sighted person, read every bolded word on this page, a sighted person could do that instantly and without hesitation. A Braille reader can't do that. A Braille reader cannot, you know, if you said read the bold words on this page, well, I have to read every word on the page and then tell you which ones are bolded. A sighted person doesn't have to do that. So it's, it's the linear nature of Braille makes bold not actually perform the same function that it does for sighted people. Let's talk about web braille because I don't want to lose the story of how web braille came into being. I love web braille for a number of reasons. I haven't used it, but it reminds me that we as blind people often pave the way. And you see this in a number of examples in technology over the years, dating all the way back to the 33 RPM record, to the reading machine, and, and on and on. And WebBrow came along long before most sighted people anyway were using devices to read their books, and blind people were doing that. Well, I'll tell you what happened. WebBrow is one of those kind of happy accidents. Uh, in the early 90s, the Braille producers said to NLS produces its books with um, four, five, six different Braille producers. The Braille producers said to NLS, you know, we um, have the files for these books. Would you guys like to keep those files? Maybe you need them someday for making replacement volumes and that sort of thing. And NLS said, oh, what a good idea. Yeah, sure. Why don't you just send them along when every time you finish a book? So, NLS started collecting them, and they arrived on diskette. And when the diskettes arrived, they weren't even taken out of their envelopes. They were thrown into a box. And this started in 1992. And every year, NLS did five or 600 Braille books, and the disks arrived, and they were thrown into a box. It was a big box. The libraries have these boxes that are about three feet by three feet, maybe a meter by a meter by a meter, something like that. They're enormous. And this box was actually getting pretty full after about five years. And nobody thought much about what to do with those. Meanwhile, um, the digital revolution, as it's called, was, was getting underway. And more and more people were saying to NLS, you know, when are you going to put books on CD? When are you going to put books in digital form? And NLS knew that it was something that it needed to, to think about and consider and explore. And 
that CDs were not going to be very good for a lot of our folks. And I think I think NLS called that very well because um, when we when we were able to put books onto cartridge but cartridges, which are just essentially uh, USB flash drives for all practical purposes, in a in a case with a label, uh, it was it, it worked well, and it, it those cartridges are are serving us and our population very very well, and we also have downloadable materials and so forth. But in the early nineties, mid nineties, when we were talking about this. Well, it it was, I think, a lot of the techies among blind people were getting a little frustrated with NLS because they thought NLS was moving a bit slowly. And I remember one day saying, you know, I know something we could do that would make at least some people happy and it would actually be very cool. You know, we could take all those BRF files that we have in that box and put them online and let people download them and read them. And they're in contracted Braille, so uh, it doesn't reverse translate too nicely. Uh, and that could be really, really great. And so we did. We hired a contractor to take all those diskettes. Thank God I didn't have to do it. And copy all those BRF files off. And uh, when we, we we started a... this, I remember suggesting WebRail in September of 1997, and we started a pilot of it in March of 98, and people did like it. And we started with 50 books, and we had about 150 people in our pilot, and and we had the pilot for a few months, and we learned a lot. And then we had to create the website and the password system that actually took the longest and how people were going to register for it and so forth. And we launched it in 99 and in less time, that was very fast. Um, you know, two years from idea to full blown project was uh, pretty amazing. And it's a concept, as I say, that was way ahead of its time when you consider that I, I'm not aware of any significance, um, or maybe other than project Gutenberg. But but other than that, you know, there, were, there weren't a lot of mass market uh, ways of getting books that were currently in copyright. One of the big concerns about WebRail at the time was NLS had traditionally provided the equipment to use its materials. So for if you we had records, we had record players. If we had cassettes, we had cassette players. And it was a real concern. NLS made a real commitment and made a point that we would always offer um, books in hard copy Braille, that we would not offer web Braille in as the only, you know, we wouldn't put a book out only in electronic form because that would uh, disenfranchise about three quarters of the Braille users. What do you think the Marrakesh Treaty may do to services like uh, WebRail and, and BART. Can you see a day where if the US ever becomes a signatory to the treaty that the service might be opened up in some way or would it be more a matter of interloan with other special format libraries that may become easier? I, I don't know. I, I don't know that there's that much English language formatted Braille that we could acquire that would look like what we have. If there's that many books out there that uh, 
um, CNIB does have some that we've actually gotten through TIGAR already. Um, but I don't know. I, I, it's, I think, I think it's more likely to have an effect on our audio side of things than, than, than the Braille side of things. So it might be possible that in future somehow consumers outside the United States may get access to, to the online version <laughs> of BART? I suppose so. If, if the U.S. ever signs it, and that's, a, a, as you know, a, a major question that's still unresolved. Yes, yeah. You've embraced technology from a very early stage, and it seems like you are one of those people that just takes naturally to technology. You, you, you bond with it well, it seems. You should see me when I get a new device. I, I, <laughs> I think I think people should see most of I, the technology so-called experts when they get a new device. <laughs> I yes. don't I don't bond with it at all. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I I just hate it when I get a new device and I can't figure out how to use it. Mm. And um, I try to download the manual or I try to. I'm an Opticon user, um, and I'm a really serious Opticon user. And I, I, so you know, the 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 print documentation it does not stand in my way. And so I read the device, and and I'm I'm not happy until I uh, get it figured out. And you know, that that's a that's a great relief when I, whew, I know how to use it. Okay, good. You know. <laughs> Reading the manual does help, and it's amazing how many people just choose not to do I'm that. A man, I'm a manual reader. Me, yeah, I, me I, too, I, yeah. I don't know why people don't read manuals. I mean, because you, you learn stuff that I think you learn stuff that you would never find out by just trial and error. I mean, maybe you can use it well enough, but I'm sure there's things in the manuals that, I mean, I agree that manuals aren't, aren't uh, it's one of the things I think about when I, uh, when I retire, what will I do? And one of the things I'm thinking of doing is um, writing documentation because I actually like writing documentation, and I and I'm uh, arrogant enough to think that my documentation might be a little bit better than what's out there now. Because I I do get frustrated with with the way so much documentation is, you know, the safety things and the you know I mean you know it's like just tell me how to use it. Yes. <laughs> Yes, it's, and it's a real skill, isn't it? Having the knowledge is one thing, but being able to impart it is actually quite a different skill. I remember my manual for my Nokia N82. <laughs> I, my Nokia N82 um, phone, and making a phone call was on page 113. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair enough. Point well taken. <laughs> Is this thing a phone or not? You know. <laughs> when did you get your first Opticon? Nineteen seventy-three. Yeah, and you're still using them. You, you stockpile them, right? Just in case one stops working. I do, but I, I'm also, I'm also willing to share. So right. uh, I, we have quite a few Opticons, and um, there's a man in California who re still repairs them. And I will share parts and make it possible for people who want to continue to use an Opticon to use one. So uh, Now, there will be people listening to this who were born after the Opticon sort of had its day. So tell us a bit about the Opticon for, for beginners. It's a great sadness because, I, I mean, if, if my house burned down and I could grab one thing, the thing I would grab would be my Opticon. 
Um, it's it's a device for reading print directly. It's hardcover print book sized, and it has a camera tethered uh, on a cord, and the camera is run across print, and the letters that it sees are represented on a tactile array that you have your other hand, your one hand runs camera across the paper and the other hand is on this tactile array and it buzzes, it vibrates, which some people find quite annoying, but Opticon users ignore that after a while. But you, the, there, it's a grid of 144 pins and the, the letters, the shapes of the letters are represented with those vibrating pins. This is a kind of a difficult question, like the Braille one, but how efficiently can you work with this and, and process information with it? I can't read as fast as I can read Braille by a long shot, but I can read a full page of print in two or three minutes, I'd say. I mean, I can, I, I can read efficiently enough to get the job done. And certainly, I mean, we sort all our mail. All our, you know, I mean, that's the, the first line of defense in the house. Um, if we if we get an, a food item, let's say, that we don't know what it is, we'll take it to the barcode scanner first. And if it doesn't know it, it goes to the Opticon second. Um, and if we can't figure out it out from the Opticon, that would be a pretty unusual item. So even in this era where you could, say, take a snap of uh, a piece of mail with the KNFB reader, say, just picking a product at random, you would still find the Opticon a more efficient solution than that? Yes, only because usually what the Opticon is good for is sorting. Um, the it, scanning of any kind is, you know, it'll start at the top and go to the bottom. And usually what I want to know is, you know, who's this letter to or who's this letter from or, you know, I, I can pick and choose exactly where on a page I want to read and uh, do it very fast. Do you also use it to look at a screen when something won't boot up, that kind of stuff? Yes, yes. And, and, and uh, I mean, we've in the old days, we've installed Windows with the Opticon and uh, – in, in living in a house with with no sighted people around, uh, we've had to resort to some lots of uh, ways of getting things done. And of course, those ways are changing over the years with with more opportunities with FaceTime and and all the various apps that are now coming out where you can actually get some sighted help with your technology and combine those things together. It's kind of an interesting uh, evolution of the way we use technology and the way we get our tasks done. But um, it, it's the Opticon is still a major, major uh, piece in our, in our arsenal. Yeah, that, and perhaps it's an antiquated mindset thing, but using some sort of volunteer service, wonderful though it is, it, it doesn't feel quite as independent somehow as getting the information yourself. It's true, and I, I try not to have thoughts like that, but, but, but I do. I agree with that. I, it, it's, <laughs> it doesn't feel as independent, and, and, and it's not as direct. I mean, it's, you have to be patient, and you have to you know, ask the question in the way that people can understand. It's, very, it's a very different process. And then, of course, you've got to make sure that the camera's just in the right place. And, and, and if, if people aren't familiar, the, one of the worst things about seeking any kind of sighted help 
is that when you jolly well know that something that you're looking for is definitely on a screen somewhere and and they're just not finding it, it can be very <laughs> frustrating. It's it's frustrating when you think, if I could see, I could do this. Yes. yes, <laughs> yes. Sometimes sight is wasted on sighted people. You know? <laughs> well, you know, long before consumers were using the internet as a sort of a mass market tool, you were online, uh, a number of us were, but you, I think, were a lot earlier than most, with uh, things like bulletin boards and the CompuServe information service. Uh, those online services really gave us a glimpse, didn't they, in, in the 80s of what was possible. Oh, remember we even started shopping. We had CompuStore yeah. and the Electronic Mall. And I remember when I was, you know, my electronic shopping was what, what the allure was for me. I loved it. And that was such great fun too. And I think shopping must have been, it's funny because I don't like going to actual physical stores. So I remember when I first started to learn to use the Opticon, the the uh, book that just totally, totally captivated me was the L.L. Bean catalog. And <laughs> I could just read that by the hour because I'd never had chance to read that kind of thing before. And it's the same thing with online stuff. I mean, we, you know, in the 80s, we did online shopping and that was that was just so new and so exciting and so now it's just I mean, you know we want something we go to amazon now we have amazon same day delivery and two hour delivery i think amazon can it's getting to the point where amazon can get things here faster than i could go to the store to get it i just can't wait for the day when something arrives by drone yeah why don't you got a drone outside your window or, ah, or something like that uh, it's going to be incredible. Uh, as well as all the services that you mentioned on CompuServe, I think the thing that really captivated me at the time was the executive news service and the fact that you could finally independently read from publications like the Washington Post and oh, a number yes. of other ones directly online. It was an amazing thing. And you could talk to people all yes. over the world. You could, you could in real time, you could talk to people, and that was that was fun. I mean, in those yes. days. Overseas phone calls were prohibitively expensive. It was fun. I remember the there was a disability forum, and then there were subsections in that forum, and there mm. was a blindness one. And that's how I first sort of stumbled upon you know, some of the people that I've I've got to know very well in in subsequent years, and having having those discussions, putting the world to rights in the disability <laughs> forum. <laughs> what would what were you using when you first went online? Because you got your account, I think, in 1981, was it that you got your? I did, and I was using a tape-based VersaBraille. You were going and online with that with a terminal overlay, yes, connected yes. to a modem, yes. <laughs> and uh, I was not a speech user, and I I didn't start using a computer with any speech at all until the early 2000s. I used only a Braille display through the DOS years. And then when I started using the window eyes screen reader in 2000, I started using speech and Braille together. And I think, and it's not a bad thing. I think I, I still now use both. And, and if I just want to, maybe I'm getting lazier in my old age. I don't know. But I, I, if I want to just read a whole document, just sit back, let it rip, try not to fall asleep. And... <laughs> But I, if I want to just um, actually see it, I'll read it with a Braille display. I still, I I have difficulty using speech alone. And do you find you using, process information differently 
through either medium? Like, does do things stick more if you, if yes. you read it in Braille? Oh, yeah. Speech mm. goes in one ear and out the other. Oh. And I have trouble following. It, if, if it's just a document that I'm reading with speech, I, I my mind just wanders. I I have trouble paying attention to it. Whereas if I read it, read the document in Braille, I can I can totally take it in. So in 1981, gosh, was it a 300 board? <laughs> I think it was. Yeah. I still have it. I not long ago we were cleaning out a cupboard and I found a Hayes 1200 board modem, a metal one with a volume control, yeah. and I. I said, "Oh, look! It's not. It's not an acoustic coupler. It's just one of those flat ones." Yes, um, but uh, it was uh, very nostalgic finding that. And you know, God, yeah, and if, if you were using that terminal overlay with the with the tape based VersaBrow, then you will have had to become familiar with entering all those Hayes commands manually, like the AT, oh, yes. AT, and ATZ, and H this, and oh yeah, I mean, you know. It, you felt powerful when you you could do these things. Now <laughs> they've made it so easy. Now that you know, who has to use init strings anymore? <laughs> it, it was amazing stuff. Amazing times. Did you go on the bulletin boards as well? Or were you mainly using the online services? I was mostly using the online services. I did use the bulletin boards some. Um, I read them a lot. Um, you know, kind of kind of like Facebook. Now I just read it. You know, I just <laughs> yeah. Nah, yeah, but but, yeah. but you know, it, it's difficult, isn't it? When, when you're in a kind of a a high profile job or or a job that makes such a huge impact on the blind community like yours, and your kind of your name is associated with a service that people really do cherish. But when they cherish a service, you know they they have quite strong reactions to anything that goes on with it. So that that probably does impact on the degree to which you want to engage online. I would think. It does. It does. In in my early years working for NLS, it was a major concern of mine. What is my personal life? What is my professional life? Um, what what am I doing? Is is what I'm doing work related? Is it personal? And I have long since given up worrying about that. I'm I'm doing what I'm doing because I like doing it. And if it's my personal interest or my work interest, they have blurred completely and I just I don't worry about it anymore and if I if I have an opinion I it's it's I label it as my personal opinion because I have personal opinions but since I uh, pretty much agree with what NLS is doing uh, that has not been a problem for me you've been associated with many tech products over the years and I remember uh, seeing your name when I obtained my first Braille light, I think you'd written a document uh, for Blazy Engineering about um, various techniques to to use it effectively. And I remember that you were using what was a remarkable machine for its time, and I think that's even earlier than the Braille light. And that was the David, which was like <laughs> that was a the original PC, I think, that was running Braille. Quite a phenomenal device, phenomenal price too. I think the David was later than the Braille Light because okay. I got it's a bit my, of a blur at my age, you know. The, yeah, yeah, I got my first David I think in ninety two. Right. Yes, and it was it was a it was a PC with a Braille display built in. Hmm. I had a serious accident in nineteen ninety one. I fell down a manhole, goodness, and broke a lot of bones and um, badly injured my right arm. 
to the point that for some, I, I shattered five inches of my upper arm. They had to put um, bone from my hip uh, into my upper arm, and I have two plates and um, pins all the way down to my wrist. And I still have the plates and pins and all of this. But um, at first they told me I would probably not get much use of my arm back. And I had no feeling in my right hand. And I'm a right-handed Braille reader. And I tried. I couldn't read Braille. I couldn't read Braille for weeks. And I remember saying to Doug one day, I think you're going to have to put speech in my computer. I think, you know, it's just... I just can't do it because I, I'd try to read a line of Braille. It would take 10 minutes. And it was so distressing. I mean, that was the worst part of all. Forget all the broken bones and everything else. I just, you know, the fact that I couldn't read Braille was just so horrible. And my physician kept telling me, the orthopedic surgeon said, you know, I think you will get back the feeling in your hand. It'll just take time. And because he said that the nerves were badly stretched but not broken. And it did. I mean, it was like a miracle. One day my hand started to tingle, like kind of like if your foot's asleep and then when it's waking up and my hand started to tingle and I got the feeling in my hand back in just the course of a couple of hours. And it was just so amazing. But in that whole process, um, I did file suit against the company that had left this manhole unguarded and I got a decent settlement and I... After all that I had been through, the year that it took me to recover from all this, I said to myself, I'm going to buy myself a significant present. And that was when I bought the David. (laughs) (laughs) It was a remarkable device. I mean, the fact that it was sort of a portable note-taker type device uh, that was running full DOS. Oh, it was. It was just great. And then they they had a Pentium version of the David that was really quite lovely i mean it was it was beautiful too i mean every time i used it people it was bright red and it attracted a lot of attention sighted people yeah it's nice hardware yeah it's amazing when we look back at all the gadgets that we've used and discarded over the years you know bonnie keeps reminding me that that our garage is not a museum but oh. we're sort of fossicking <laughs> through all the technology there looking what we can throw out and it's just amazing you know rs232 devices and things that we we just forget about that was so state-of-the-art at the time oh i have a keynote gold multimedia sitting over here on my table and i i keep i keep thinking what a, what a shame it is because it was such an expensive device and it's so useless now yes <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Yeah, and and it was very responsive, and you could crank that thing significantly up. And um, th- there was the accent as well, which was also quite responsive. And you could put the little PC card in there and um, have it respond quite promptly too. Uh, these days, of course, we've many of us have moved on to iOS devices. And uh, how are you feeling about that? I, you you wrote the book, take uh, get the picture which was great because I think so many of us as, as totally blind people from birth need to understand how to engage with the camera effectively. So that was a really useful contribution there. But how are you feeling about the iPhone world right now? 
Oh, I love it as much as ever. Um, that was a really fun book to do. What I did, actually, I hired a professional photographer, and uh, I found her online and explained what I needed, that I was a blind person, but I needed to learn to take pictures. And this woman was so fantastic. She totally got into it and and was wonderful at teaching me. So I uh, I figured if I could learn how to do it, then I could explain it to everybody else. And it was so fun. I, I, I tend to like to approach new subjects i kind of get into them you know lock stock and barrel and and that's resulted in in a number of books for national braille press um i've done them all as as a volunteer i write the books and give them to them and say sell them for whatever you wish and uh that's been that's you know for me that's my recreation and it's been really fun and i i'm looking around for a, another subject to write another book about um, I was thinking of doing one about scanning, but I've decided that that um, the the scanning world is uh, probably dominated by really one one really good product. So um, I don't want to write a book about products just because they happen to be cheaper. What kind of things are you using your iPhone camera for on a sort of daily or weekly basis? I use it a lot for barcodes. Um, I use. Um, Seeing assistant home, I w- was using red laser, but unfortunately it died. And uh, so I'm using seeing assistant home or digitized. Use it a lot for that. I may take it to the grocery store and use it for uh, for for uh, barcodes and uh, scanning. I do do I do use KNFB reader a lot for scanning and reading labels and signs and documents and so forth. And. Uh, I play solitaire. <laughs> <laughs> what what kind of techniques can you offer for getting the barcode in the view with the barcode scanners? Because sometimes they can be quite tiny, and it's all about firstly locating where the barcode is, but then making sure that the distance between the camera and the barcode is such that it's going to get in the view. Well, that actually, the distance is something that you need to be sensitive to what your app works best at, because once you find that your app, um, it'll be pretty consistent product to product. So um, some apps work a little better closer than others. But the, the real key is hold very still and be patient. Um, that's, that's what will do the best. What other pieces of technology are you excited about that's current at the moment? I know that when when you were here, we had a discussion about um, you being into the the Sonos equipment. Uh, so you, you you you're all audiofied with with Sonos at home. Oh yes, yes, we have seven Sonos devices, and we have um, the Echo and the what's this one's name? Um, Echo. Yeah, the Amazon Echo. Yeah. Good morning. Good morning. Today is recognized as an international day of friendship. It's a great day to celebrate your friends. That's uh, this handy one. to know. Yeah. <laughs> so, so how does that fit into your Alexa? world? I, I've been yeah. talking. I've been talking in the in family conferences about the Amazon Echo, and people are saying, you know, why do we need to have one of these when we're so steeped in the Sonos ecosystem now? So, how do you find the two kind of complement one another? In our house, um, the Alexa, uh, this happens to be a, a, a dot that you just heard, um, but Alexa, the Echo, um, lives in the kitchen. 
And so it, the, the role that it plays in our life is Alexa, set a timer for 20 minutes. Uh, Alexa, add olive oil to the shopping list while my hands are busy doing something else. And um, Alexa, what's new? And, you know, we'll listen to the news while we're eating dinner. Or Alexa, play Jeopardy. So we play Jeopardy while we're eating dinner. And uh, so it's, 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 it's not something that we use to listen to music very much because our music is more in Apple Music than it is in Amazon Music. And so it, it, but it has a, you know, it has a role in our life just, um, and, and we ask it things. Um, I was asking her this morning, you know, how old is Hillary Clinton and how old is Bill Clinton and how old is Donald Trump and how old is uh, Melania Trump? And, and it was great fun. (laughs) (laughs) It's going to be a, a big void for you to fill when you leave NLS, you know, you've made such a contribution over such a, you know, many, many decades. Well, I've been at NLS for 35 years. I celebrated my 35th anniversary about a month ago and um, I'm not leaving anytime soon. I, I, but I do think about it because I, I, I am, I'm, I'm not afraid of retiring. I know there's so much to do and uh, it would be nice to get through my to-do list a little faster than I do now and, and to spend a lot of time learning. But I also, um, I know I'm not a person who's going to just, just start reading books and, you know, baking cakes. I think I will need something to do. So I'm probably going to try to find some significant work or, or do something. I, I don't, I don't worry about it. I, I, there's, there's, there's always way more to do than, than I ever have time for. And so uh, it's, I, I will probably put my effort into learning. I believe it was Hillary Clinton herself who controversially said in 1992, I suppose I could have stayed home and baked cookies. (laughs) Yeah. I actually remember her saying that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, well, there's so much else we could discuss, but it's been great to just get a snapshot of just a few of the of the things that you've achieved, and um, the the time has flown by. And perhaps we might get you back on the program to talk about some specific subjects as they arise. But thank you so much for your time. Congratulations on all that you've done, and it's been wonderful to spend this time with you. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to the Blind Side a production of Mosin Consulting, on the web at mosin.org.